days ago, somebody relatively prominent said, uh, Bitcoin is bigger than the internet, bigger than the industrial revolution. Was that Tim Draper? And it's exactly what's happening with Bitcoin. Bitcoin possesses all the attributes, not only of good money, but of supremely good money. But of course, it's not financial advice. Hey guys, welcome to a new podcast of Financial Advice. Today we have a guest a lot of our pro members have uh, asked us questions about. And I'm also here today with Bill. So Bill, feel free to introduce our guest and I hope you're doing well. Hi, Stan. It's lovely to be here today and I'm thrilled to bring on a guest that we've got on. It's one that the members have asked us, as you said. And today we've got on Durden, who is one of the co-founders of Elefinity Flares. Elefinity Flares is an innovative project that stands at the intersection of NFTs and DeFi. Holders of the NFT are then able to take advantage of Elefinity's innovative market-making strategies, which utilize an oracle instead of a central limit order book, and thus leverage their capital in the best possible manner. We've brought Durden on today to find out more about the intersection between NFTs and DeFi, and how the idea for this came about, and how they're looking to move forward and execute upon it. It's lovely to have you with us, Durden. I hope you're looking forward to the podcast, and please introduce yourself to our listeners. Hey guys, uh, great to be on the podcast. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, so I go by Durden on our Discord server. Durden, maybe you could Start. explain a bit why you got into crypto and like what made you choose Solana? Sure thing. So I, like all the other founders, got into crypto back in 2017 and uh, have been with it ever since. That was my actually my first investing experience, started with crypto. Um, for the other founders who are uh, developers, they, after getting into crypto and the bear market began, they uh, stayed in and uh, were traders for a few years. And uh, I came to Solana last year's March. Yeah, before that I was on Bitcoin and Ethereum. I did like a very minimal amount of DeFi on Ethereum, but it was pretty pricey, so it's hard to get like super involved. And then yeah, those, uh, those uh, $200 gas fees don't really yeah. let you play around yeah. and learn things yourself, do they? It's a bit yeah, punishing exactly. for the new user. Yeah, precisely. And then uh, I'd heard about Solana. I did some like basic research into um, how it functions and whether its claims of its high performance were true. And uh, yeah, started experimenting on Solana and uh, it worked as advertised. And I was able to do a lot more in DeFi, even though like there wasn't too much around back then. Yeah. So basically, despite the lack of the platforms that you found at the time, you could see that the fact that you could try things out for basically no cost, which you can't do in Ethereum, made it much more appealing for someone who's new and like yourself to come in and try things. So as you said, you know, the, the most of the team, they were in 2017, they stayed in the market. And then we get to this point around March that you said that you've discovered Solana now and you've played around with it and you can see the vision. How do we go from March to December and how do you get together with your co-founders? How do you decide to do this Infinity Flares thing? Where does the idea from it come from? You know, we've got there and now... You, how does the team come together to deliver the product that we saw towards the end of December? 
Yeah, so I come in a bit later. So meanwhile, while I'm yield farming on Solana, <laughs> so are my co-founders um, on Radium. And they they realize that LPing on Radium is basically you're along the assets and short on volatility. So they tried this strategy where they would unstake their LP tokens whenever volatility became high and stake them only when volatility was low and uh, tried to generate a stable profit that way and yeah. uh yeah they owe me some money from the impermanent loss i took in radium back in the day because i'm sure it was them that was <laughs> doing the pools settled and unsettled and for anyone wondering when we refer to radium and liquidity providing radium uses if i'm not mistaken a constant product market maker it's like uniswap or no sorry radium's a central limit order book so it has orders and you go in and you can provide liquidity and those get used to be bought and sold and so, in some case, yes. Actually, actually, Radium, yeah, it does use a constant product. But the other thing it does is it uses the liquidity it has and places it on Serum, the uh, central yeah. limit order book. So it yeah, kind of does I, both. I was going to say, I, I knew I knew it did one of the two, and I know it uses Serum as its backing because I've had a lot of members ask me about Serum and if it does take the volume, and I always know it's yes. But yeah, long story short, for anyone wondering about LPing, you put in, you know, you can pick two currencies, Solana and Ethereum or Sol and USDC, depending on what options you have. You lock them up and those are useful liquidity. So if someone comes in and wants to buy, they'll be buying some of your tokens there and you get rewards for this. However, once you lock them in and the market starts going up or down drastically, this balance between the tokens changes and that can lead to you actually losing USD value. So it, liquidity providing something that, on the surface, seems really simple to people. They're like, I'll just put my money in and get a stable reward back. In reality, with the volatility, as Durden mentioned, you're opening yourself up to more risk than you think you're going to have. So you have to be very careful. And as you heard me say, his partners are probably the reason I didn't do well with my LPing, and that's why I've stopped LPing. But yeah, so please continue. Yeah, just to add on to that, I think the simplest way to put it is like, um, say you're an LP for a sole USDC and the price of Sol goes up, then that means as an LP, you're going to sell Solana because other people are buying it, and that's why the price is going up. So in the end, that means you're going to have less Sol in your, pool, in your pool when you withdraw. So you have less of the asset that went up in price, and that's what results in the impermanent loss. Yeah, and then tack on crypto's extreme upside because... Uh, uh, as many of you know that crypto, if, it, if something goes to zero, it can't go below zero. It's hit zero, that's the end. But the upside is basically unlimited. So for example, back in the day in March when Solana was at $20 and you were LPing, Solana could easily go to 100, which was a 5x. But if it went to zero, that was minus 100%. So you can see the asymmetry that was there in the liquidity providing. But anyways, it's, liquidity providing is not the topic of our uh, podcast today. But it's one of the reasons I think that led to you guys deciding to do Alfinity. So continue on after the radium LPing and realizing what this meant, what, what did you guys come up with? Yeah, so that's where my co-founders came up with the idea. And uh, the main component of it is to use an oracle to uh, determine what price to offer on a DEX. So with the Uniswap V2 model, or the constant product model, the price that the DEX offers is entirely dependent on the current balance of assets in the pool. So it's kind of like not very intelligent, you might say. Yes. Um, so, 
So like on centralized exchanges, for example, you have market makers and they're constantly adjusting the prices they offer based on the volatility, other traders' behavior, and like many other factors. But this constant product model doesn't pay attention to any of that. It's just the assets in the pool. So in contrast to that, what Lefinity does is it uses an Oracle. Currently, we use Pith. Uh, Pith mm -hmm. aggregates prices from many centralized exchanges, market makers, and traders, and uh, has a unique algorithm to create a sort of average of yep. the prices that they all offer, and also provides a confidence interval yes. um, for that price. Dodo, before, before we dive in, because we're getting a bit technical, I'm just going to pause here before we dive into the Pyth stuff and just go through some definitions so everyone's on the same page. Awesome. When we say Oracle and we mention Pyth, as you said, the Pyth Oracle aggregates all these prices together and gives you and allows you to take the price from them. But you, the question then that someone listening and, you know, I would have if I hadn't done my research beforehand is, why is that a benefit? So you said that on the centralized exchanges, we have market makers who change the prices. But on Uniswap with the, you know, with the pools that we said, how do the prices change? You said they, they, they vary on the pool, but you know we've said that it's a big advantage that you've got the Oracle coming in, but can you explain to me why that's an advantage compared to the Uniswap model of, you know, let's just use liquidity pools to provide liquidity and it'll balance out? What makes the Oracle better? That's what I want to know. Got it. So uh, basically, I guess a simple way to think about this is we have decentralized exchanges and centralized exchanges. And what's important to know is that prices always move faster on centralized exchanges. Um, I assume oh, this because they what? simply have more volume and more traders. And so it's, is it the volume and the traders along with the market makers that make sure that we get the best or most accurate price on the centralized exchanges? That, basically, that's what we're saying. And then how does this affect DEXIs? What, what happens on DEXIs in the same context? Right. So I think it's helpful to think about what market makers do. So say like yeah. you have a market maker on Binance and they're trading Seoul USDC. When they do this, they're not just looking at the prices on Binance. They're also looking at prices on other exchanges. So for example, say the price on, uh, what's another exchange? Uh, FTX. Yes. The Someone puts in like a, a giant buy order for Seoul. Then the price on FTX for Seoul is going to move up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And that means there's going to be arb arbitragers between Binance and FTX. Uh, people can buy Seoul on Binance and then sell it on FTX and make an instant profit. And the profit um, here is a difference between the buying price and the selling price. So yeah. if, if F, the big buy order on FTX makes Seoul go to $110 and on Binance it's $100, the person's buying one solemn Binance for 100 and selling it on FTX for 110 and the profit is 10. That's the arbitrage. But what I want to ask you now is that isn't that buying pressure that's going to happen on Binance? Isn't that going to move the price up a little bit? And isn't that selling pressure on FTX going to bring the price down a bit? Yeah, exactly. So market makers, like when they see that a huge order went on in FTX, they'll be like, oh, so buy pressure incoming on Binance and they can adjust their prices so they don't essentially get any impermanent loss. They don't sell their soul at a too low price. 
Yes. They know John, where the arbitrageurs should take the price and they, they take it there before it happens. I see. So for the market makers on the on the books, they're the ones that are making sure that we get, you know, those tight things and they're the ones making the profit from these opportunities. Now, if the same scenario happens, you know, at the same time this is happening on FTX and Binance, and we went through, you know, Sol was at hundred on Binance, hundred and ten FTX, and then it adjusts down due to the pressures to around 105, we'd say, because it sits somewhere in the middle from the buying and selling pressure. What happens at the same time, though, on Uniswap, right? That, that's what yeah. I want to know. So I guess now to like switch our example a little bit, let's think about what happens on Binance and, like say, Radium. Um, so if the price goes up on Binance, well, on Radium, there are no market makers who are adjusting. Like They don't see anything that's happening on Binance, so they don't adjust anything. So what happens is that uh, if the price of Sol goes up on Binance, people can um, buy Sol on Radium because Radium hasn't adjusted its prices. It's still at $100 per Sol. And then they mm -hmm. can take the Sol that they bought and then immediately sell it on Binance for a profit. Exactly. And so, so basically the pool on Radium is being arbitraged and that's what's causing the impermanent loss. So the difference here is that on Binance, it's the market makers that are, are setting the price at the correct price. On Radium, though, it's not the market makers or the protocol. It's the individuals who are sat there and can see the difference and do it manually. So Radium is effectively paying or, well, when we say Radium, Radium doesn't have a bank itself. The people who are liquidity providing are the ones who are basically losing the money to the person who's moving the price where it should be. In the classic CEX model, we see market makers make this money. On DEXIS, now we see these arbitrage traders making the money. And this then leads us to Alfinity. In Alfinity, with the Oracle model, who makes the money and why do they make it? Because I think that is the, or this question is the core selling point of Alfinity, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, so you could say, like, in, in a sense, like, we're not too different from Radium. Like, we also have liquidity providers and they have the potential to make money from trading fees. And uh, yeah, like that's the same for both. It's just that a big difference with Lifinity um, is that, again, we use the Oracle and this uh, really changes how profitable we are able to be. Right. Walk me through what happens in the same example we did for Binance and Radium. What happens with Lifinity in this example? So how would Infinity react to this, to like what we said with a big buy order on FTX and $100 solemn Binance, et cetera? Just walk me through that example, please. Yeah, so I'll just make it really simplified. But so say a buy order happens on Binance again and Sol yep. goes from 100 to 110. Well, because we are integrated with Pith, the market makers will tell Pith that, hey, there's just this huge buy order on Binance and then it'll be reflected in the price. And so we're basically, uh, Lifinity is told that the price has changed and therefore Lifinity will adjust the price that it's offering to be in line with that price, um, that the change that's occurred on centralized exchanges. And how and, quickly does the price adjust? Uh, very quickly. Uh, and that's mainly a consequence of Solana. So Pith actually puts its prices on chain uh, mm -hmm. Every, I believe it's every block. So that's 400 milliseconds, I think. Yes. 
Exactly, exactly. Uh, Pith, Pith publishes the... So as, as Durden said earlier, Pith takes data from FTX, Binance, Uniswap, wherever it is, you name it, they've got certain data providers that they've checked and they know are good data providers. They take all the prices in, they put them together into a formula. You can think of it like an average. Why do they do this? Well, let's say that you know something happens on the FTX API and the, and the price they're getting from FTX is a bit broken. It should say 110, but they're getting 11 for some technical error. If they only used FTX's price, they then quote $11 to everyone and Infinity would have a problem. But when Pyth takes all the price and puts them together and sees that, well, hang on a minute, from the five out of the six exchanges I'm taking my prices, all five of them are $110 and FTX is at 11, they know to exclude, well, the algorithm knows to exclude the wrong price date and keep what's shown to be generally true or across most marketplaces. And as Durden said, they publish this every Solana block on chain. So Alfinity will check the data that, you know, uh, Pyth is publishing, which will update every 0.4 seconds. And for that reason, there won't be anyone able to go and take advantage of the liquidity providers because the pool will change the price based on what Pyth is saying, which is based on what the centralized exchanges are saying, which is the most efficient price. So I want to ask a question as well. I wondered if this is currently only possible to do on Solana and on like layer twos, because obviously Uniswap wouldn't really be able to do this on Ethereum right now, right? Because it takes too long to publish a block. Yeah, I do think that definitely plays a role. Like, for example, just imagine if block times were like 10 minutes, then if you're using a price published like five minutes ago, well, the price can have changed quite a bit in five minutes. So if you're still using that price to like um, price your trades, then you could definitely get like front run or arbitrage or whatever in that time. So outside of the, you know, the DeFi that we've talked in the market making, I know Alfinity and Norbert who introduced me to, to, to you guys and the protocol and has, I know has advised you. Norbert was on the podcast. He's the lead developer on Synthetify. Please go back and have a listen to that. It was one of my first podcasts. I'd really appreciate that. But he, he, when he first reached out to me, he talked to me that you guys were doing this thing called concentrated liquidity. And I heard about concentrated liquidity earlier as well. And I had a podcast with Grace, who's the founder of Orca. And she also mentioned concentrated liquidity to me. And I find it interesting that you guys have now managed to deliver on this. So I'd like to hear a bit more about what is concentrated liquidity and how it fits into this Oracle market making scheme? So, so please, what is concentrated liquidity and what's the fit? Sure. So, yeah, there's a few flavors of concentrated liquidity. Uh, one is um, stable swaps. So, for example, on Solana, there's like Mercurial and Sabre, for example. And these are ones that concentrate like assets. So, for example, USDC, USDT. And they're able to do this because it, it's basically assuming that one USDC should always be worth one USDT. So they know the relative price is stable, so they can concentrate around that price. And then separately, there's Uniswap V3 style concentration, where for this, it doesn't need to be uh, like assets. It can be like sole USDC, but the user needs to specify the range in which they want to provide liquidity, where they want to concentrate their liquidity. So this isn't too great from a UX perspective because like, you can concentrate around the current, 
price, but the current price is is going to keep moving. And so basically, it's like it's Uniswap V2 and permanent loss on steroids. Um, yeah, I mean, constant- look, look, let's dive into some details about this step by step. So when we say concentrated liquidity, let's understand why the name comes up. So in the constant market maker product, as the prices move on each asset, so too does the price that is quoted. And you have no control over this as a liquidity provider. It's either an on you providing or off you're not providing. Then when we had Uniswap V3, the concentrated liquidity come in, what we saw is that you could select when your on and off switch would go. So if you wanted to only provide liquidity when Ethereum was between $2,000 and $2,400, that was fine. You could select that option, but the UI and UX was not good. It's not a smooth experience. And it's also still dangerous because if the volatility moves, well, you know, you're going to be missing out on liquidity fees and all of that, and your capital is not being used correctly. Now, I think I think that's the Uniswap uh, V3 model. Durden, what, what was the other one that you, you mentioned as well? Um, the stable swap model. So this would be like yeah. Curve on Ethereum or exactly. So for, for stable swaps, I'll keep it simpler for people. If you want to understand what, what we mean by this, one dollar $1 should always be worth one dollar wherever you go, right? You should be familiar with that concept from your everyday life with fiat currencies. In the same way in crypto, we have a number of different tokens that are used to show dollars. You have USDC and you have USDT and you have other solutions as well. Long story short, though, as we said earlier, one dollar should always be equal to a dollar. So the protocol knows that these two are, you know, at one dollar pricing. So they can, you know, they can put all their money and price it between. 0.99 you know multiple decimals to one and make sure that when you trade instead of having to buy at one dollar you know 1.01 1.02 and keep on going up your full buy order would get filled at the correct price of one which to you is a benefit because you're not paying as much and to them they're getting the liquidity fees because they're trying to attract you to trade with them so you know with these two as the example how does Alfinity fit in on this and how did you guys build further upon this with that concentrated liquidity yeah, so I guess just to explain, like, like, so what does this mean practically? As an example, on a constant product uh, AMM, say for Sol USDC, if it has a hundred million worth of USDC, I mean, or of assets deposited in its pool, then Lifinity is able to provide the same liquidity, or in other words, it's able to quote the same prices to traders with only one million worth of assets in its pool at. 100x concentration so basically it's uh, much more capital efficient it basically helps you avoid slippage so for people who are looking to trade a higher amount of money it's also probably better i mean at the moment you said you've only got up to a million liquidity what this means though is that anyone who's looking to buy smaller amounts and i think the majority of people listening to this podcast fall in that category and i'm in there as well you know when i'm not buying more than a million dollars of solar i wish i had a million dollars to buy <laughs> But for us, what this means is that it's going to root our liquidity through Alfinity. And if anyone wants to try this, I know you can see it on Orca. In some cases, it'll pop up that it's rooting you through Alfinity's protocol. I think I'm correct to saying that, aren't I, Durden? Yeah, it's, uh, I think we have approximately like 50% market share of SolUSDC and MSOLUSDC combined. I had a question about that too, because this is very beneficial for aggregators too, right? Because, for example, Jupiter will always look to quote you the best price. And for you to earn fees from Jupiter or other aggregators, you should always make sure to be on the protocol that can quote that price. 
because more users are using aggregators these days. You've seen it on Ethereum as well with one inch. So I wonder if you could uh, comment on that too. Yeah, we uh, recently integrated with Jupyter just about two weeks ago. And uh, that was huge for us because otherwise people needed to come to our website to trade for us to get any volume. But now, like most people trade on Jupyter, I think, just because like it gives you the best price. So yeah, our volume has exploded since then. And uh, let's see, I guess for, for our sole USDC pool, our trading fees, the APY for our trading fees is 64%. And uh, also the market making profit is 124%. Maybe I should explain what market making profit is. All it means is the net profit and loss you have from market making. So basically for Uniswap V2 and V3 models, this market making profit is equal to impermanent loss. And this is because there's only one option for market making with those models. It's only negative. You can't make a profit from market making. It's, it's, paying, us, the, it's paying the people who arbitrage your prices into place. That's what we said earlier. The LP yeah. fees go to them for moving the price where it should be. Precisely. And with our model, because we use the Oracle, we're able to essentially buy low and sell high. And so we can also make a profit on top of the trading fees and also avoid impermanent loss entirely. And this is not I a just, guarantee, but yeah. um, in practice, this is uh, usually what has happened. Dude, and I had this really funny image just now in my head of, uh, I know many of you might have seen the meme, you know, the one with the dog holding its own lead in its mouth and walking itself. I think if you if you were to draw this up, you would have you know the big market makers like Citadel and whoever, and the dog would be centralized exchanges. They'd be the ones walking the dog. On Uniswap, it would be the arbitrages. You know the people who move the price who'd walk the dog. And for Elfinity, it's like the dog walks itself because it's got the oracle, so it doesn't need anyone to tell it where to go. That, that's that's my uh, <laughs> explain it to me like I'm five question. But yeah, no, this I mean we've gone through like how you guys get the fees, how the market making is profitable. But I want to talk about the NFTs. Stan, plug this, plug the previous bit where I talked about NFTs here, where I did that little like intro about why we want to talk about them. Durden, the question is very simple, like how do the NFTs fit into this whole liquidity thing? So I'll leave it to you to pick it up whenever you want to start. Sure. So the motivation for our NFTs is, well, I should mention, we still haven't opened our liquidity pools to the public. So people actually can't deposit yet, even though we're planning to do that very soon. So back in December, when we had like only a little bit of liquidity, which is basically just the team's assets, we just had like 100K or something. We wanted to bootstrap liquidity and we thought NFTs would be a great way to do this. So basically the mechanism we came up, came up with was to use the 100% of the proceeds from the sale of our NFTs, uh, deposit that into our liquidity pools and then use all the trading fees and the royalties that the NFTs would earn on secondary marketplaces. Use all the revenue we generate for um, buying back the NFTs and also reinvesting into the pools so that they keep growing. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to, to interrupt here and ask a question, also talk for a minute roughly, and then you can tell me if what I'm saying is right or, or not. What, one thing I found really interesting is that you said at the start, you did, you know, you made the protocol effectively, the market making thing. And the team put up their own assets of 100K in. 
And I'm guessing that before you did the NFT, you guys did some testing and you saw positive results. And for anyone who's worked in the field of like quantum market making, before I'm guessing you even did any live trading, you did back tests and checked against historical data that things worked. And what I find interesting is that raising more capital is also a way to more robustly test your your algorithm. Why I say this, when you back test, it's easy and you can get results because you have the data. But when things go into a live setting, things become different. You know, you don't know how things are going to evolve and you might have issues. So of course, when you do live testing, you test with a smaller amount of money and your own money. Now, clearly the team did this and then they needed to put more money in. The question is why? And I'll give an answer what I think the answer is and then Dernan can confirm. One thing that I knew from when I used to bet is that liquidity is a huge issue. There's a difference between running a model and betting $50 a game, or in this case, making $50 trades on crypto and market making with a $50 limit, where your risk is very small. And there's a difference between going and betting, you know, half, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on the game or market making in the tens of thousands of dollars. Why do I say that? Well, the amount of money that's going into the trade also plays a role in the price you get, where you end up, how much you can sell, at what price you can sell. Liquidity is a huge factor here. So scaling up from that 100K to whatever was raised from the NFT project is a better way to understand if the project can actually deliver. So am I right in my guess on that, Durden, and what, why the team went with that decision? Yeah, basically, I think that captured it. Like, There's a unseen effects that you can only see once you replicate the the conditions of like how it where it's actually going to be playing out so exactly yeah what one thing i like saying and i used to say in gambling was everything is profitable on the back test and nothing is profitable in live action that's a bit (laughs) that's a bit of a lie some things are in live action but it's much harder when you go live so i mean lovely so the nfts raised the capital you've put it in you've tested it and Talk to me a bit about the NFT product. How long has it been out? What did it mint for? How much money was raised? What are the returns coming out? What are the returns being used? I know you said something about buybacks. Just a little bit more detail about what's happening with the NFT project now, aside from just the the market-making protocol. Yeah, sure thing. So we created 10,000 animated NFTs, and uh, we sold them each for 1.5 soul. They sold out in about two hours, which was a surprise to us. We did not expect to get that kind of traction. So in terms of the revenue that they've generated, we release weekly infographics that summarize all this data. But so, so far we've generated a total of 2,374 soul. Uh, That includes both royalties and trading fees. Yep. And uh, we've bought back over 200 flares. Oh, yeah. Our our um, NFTs are called Lifinity flares. Um, so, yeah, we've bought back over 2% of the supply. Talk to me a bit about this buyback thing. How, how does that work? How much money goes into it? And how did you come up with the idea for that buyback? Right. So, um, yeah. So, one thing that's really unique about our NFT project is that uh, our team didn't take any profit from the sale of the NFTs and uh, it, all the proceeds went into the liquidity pools. And so the buyback mechanism, it's its relatively straightforward. We take all the trading fees and ro- royalties that we generate as revenue. And then we take 50% of that total revenue and we use it for buybacks. 
This basically just means we buy um, the cheapest flares that are on the floor of the marketplaces. And then we take the other 50% of the revenue and we invest it back into the liquidity pools, which is generating trading fees. So that keeps growing. I see. So, I mean, you mentioned a number earlier, around 2,500 sol. Um, Initially, there was 15,000, and you said that from that 2,500, some of it is royalties. So I'm just going to say roughly, let's say we split the royalties and the trading fees 50-50, so it's 1,250. That's around a 10% return on the trading pool in how long? Yeah, it's actually a little bit different. So like we did the raise and soul because that's the standard with NFTs. They're always mm-hmm. sold for a soul. So we got 15K soul. But then to put it in our trading pools, we had to sell some of the soul for USDC yep. so we can pair it. Yeah. And the timing of our selling the soul was lucky. It was around when Soul was 170 or $80. Oh, that was nice. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone's wondering why Sol went down, this is the reason. This is a 7,500 <laughs> Sol sell order. Sorry, guys. It's all because of us. Um, Continue, yeah. yes. So I think our pool right now contains something like 21K Soul. So like quite mm. a bit up from the original 15K Soul. It's important. And this is during a bear market. So one question I, I asked them before we, we had Affinity on the podcast, I, I talked with the dev team and asked them this. I looked at some back, back test results. So we've been in a bear market. Well, I think we're in a bull market still, because if you look at it from last year, I'm still, you know, it's a 35x from last year in Sol and everything is up in the span of a year. So Bear market, non-bear market, regardless. Since Infinity launched, though, the market's been in the downtrend. That's been quite clear. And you've still performed like this. My question is, what happens if we go into an uptrend? Do we see the same level of performance? How does that work? Yeah, so um, we released an article recently where we tested our sole USDC pool. This is before launching on Jupyter. Um, we, we self-traded with uh, centralized exchange data um, to determine what trades to execute. and um, the results were good. We uh, outperformed both constant product market maker and also just holding your assets, so not doing any trading. And during that test period, the market was like, it, it declined sharply from like 170 to 90 or something like that. And, uh, but the team has also done, yeah, so yeah, back to your question. Like the team has also done um, testing for when in a bull market, so like when price is going up. Actually, when they first did their testing back around like September and around that time, uh, Seoul was in a huge bull market. So yeah, they tested on that data as well. And uh, it basically works just as well in bull and bear markets. The reason I ask for, for anyone asking why I'm so concerned with upside and how does it perform in a bull market, it's the same question asked about the liquidity earlier. When you have an asset like crypto that's so volatile that's so volatile to the upside and it can do multiple x's upwards but as we said one x downwards in a bear market obviously you know if you're holding great you know you don't really care because the market's down these mark you know market makers are generally good for that case but in a bull market in many cases if you were liquidity providing you know with the uniswap model it's against holding holding is by far the best option and for anyone who's a member they know that we recommend to people who can't be active in crypto holding and just having a long-term view is by far the best approach and that's why the 
you know, the bull market question is such an important question. And I looked at the back test as well. And the, the team have said that the, the market maker works symmetrically. So as, as prices move, it'll have the exact same behavior upwards as it would downwards, just inverted. And to me, that makes sense. And I, I'm quite happy with the, with the approach towards it. Yeah, so yeah, um, for me, Bill, I, was, I was really happy to, to have this chat and ask my questions. I know Stan's got a couple of questions for sure. So Stan, if you want to chime in here, go for it. Uh, yeah, Bill, we're getting close to an end. And I think we have covered most of the stuff that is out right now. But before we uh, st stop the podcast, I want to know from Durden what we can expect in the coming weeks and months. And yeah, I'm very excited to hear that. Yeah, sure. So we've been uh, releasing our tokenomics gradually. It's quite long. So it's a six-part series of articles. It's relatively complex. Um, it has some novel mechanisms in them. So we're trying to slowly and surely explain it to our community so that everyone can have a full understanding. So we're going to keep releasing those and then... In the final part, we'll explain how our IDO will work. And so that will be uh, at the end of March or in April. So yeah, those are the main things you can look forward to. I guess um, also we will be opening up our pools for deposits uh, relatively soon. Oh, actually, uh, that we created a whitelist for that a while ago. So um, if, you, if you're not on the whitelist, you might have to wait a little bit longer. But yeah, that's another thing. We'll be doing in the near future yeah I'm, I'm very excited for that and we'll probably have a chat later or in the future about the token because right now people aren't able to buy it but i think it would be uh, helpful to maybe explain it on a podcast or in a different way to our members and listeners as well because there's some very interesting uh mechanisms in the token like the curve method that we have seen the v token so that will probably be something we might talk about in the future Sure, yeah, I'd be totally down to do that. Yeah, no, thank you for coming on. I mean, I'm looking forward to, to having a chat again about the tokenomics when they come out in full and hopefully putting something together to make them easy and understandable for most people. But I think today's, you know, today's recording covering Oracle's Market Maker Central Limit order books hopefully gives you a lot of insight into how trading in, you know, a top-down view into it. And you've heard about the innovative approach Infinity is taking. So if you're interested in that, as you heard, public white pools are opening up sorry the whitelist is open now cut that bit so, so as you've heard the you know the, the team are planning to open up deposits to the public so if you're interested in trying it out you want to put in a little bit of solid and see how it performs go for it as we've always said testing these protocols is the best way you can do it and i'd like to thank Dernan for coming on and going through some of these technicalities with us and explaining to me exactly how the whole process works so thank you for your time and uh, i look forward to seeing you later this month too discuss tokenomics man take care stay safe stay healthy yeah thanks for the questions and thanks for having me on yes also uh, thanks for you guys listening i hope you enjoyed the podcast make sure to check out our website at cryptonary and maybe look into our pro membership and also make to check out durden i'll make sure to put all the links down below so you can read about the tokenomics and you can also find their discord bye guys But of course, it's not financial advice.